I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. Uh, we're continuing the series that we've been doing through the book of Genesis, and uh, it's just, it's a very long book. And I do want to, real quickly before we get going, I want to offer the, the, the most severe of trigger warnings that I possibly can. We're, gonna, we're looking at a story today. It's, it's a pretty well-known story, but it's a pretty rough story. So I, um, it, it is a story that alludes to sexual violence. Uh, it alludes to other types of violence. And so if that is something that you are not really in the headspace to, to think about or listen to a story about, uh, or you have people in the room and you don't have any other place for them to go right now and your headphones aren't within reach, then, then may, maybe come back to this later. Uh, because, we're, yeah, we're going to be looking at a story that, that a lot of us are familiar with, but again, it's, it, it is a very troubling, very upsetting story, and uh, you'll, you'll see why real, real soon. And it's funny, I was thinking as I was getting, getting all, everything set today, I was realizing like how many times in the past few weeks I've had to issue trigger warnings at the beginning of the sermon. I'm thinking like this might be my third or fourth time like in a row that I've had to do that. And it turns out the thing is when you start going through the book of Genesis, you come up with some pretty messed up stuff. The book of Genesis is not for the faint of heart. And I realized like my, my daughter was just here on, on camera reading a a, a Bible verse from Psalm, either Psalm 98, 99, we're, it's, un, it's unclear, but or reciting that. And she loves to do, we, we have not prompted her to do that in any way. That is all her. She is, uh, she is the sole producer of that. We're not like pushing her in front of the camera and asking her to do that. She just sees the camera and she dives in front of it like a secret service agent in front of a bullet. It is um, aggressive. So <laughs> she, so all that to say, um, there, there are parts of the Bible that we put in front of our kids and we, you know, encourage them to, to learn or to recite or to, to sort of internalize it in one way or another, like all the, the love your neighbor stuff and the, like I, I dismissed that, all the love your neighbor stuff. But, uh, but there are certain parts of the Bible that if, if we as adults were to look at, we would think this is very upsetting. I don't know exactly how I feel about this and I certainly don't want my kid reading it at like nine o'clock in the morning. So what do we do with all that stuff? And the series that we're going through in the book of Genesis is sort of an exercise in that question of like, okay, I don't know, like what do we do with an entire chapter that has to do with circumcision? Or what, what do we do with a story about someone who um, forcibly uses a person who lives in their house as a surrogate for, um, for birth? Like those are just the stories that we've come up with. And this story that we're about to look at is, I don't know if it's as upsetting or more upsetting than the Hagar story, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. So. Uh, all that to say, this is your trigger warning. So that was a, that was a strange, elaborate trigger warning. I, I, I fully recognize that. Now, we're looking at a story today. We're starting in Genesis 18, but we're actually looking at Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19. So we actually have a whole lot of ground to cover. And thankfully, we're doing this digitally. You can pause it. You can do other things. In, in normal circumstances, I would have like 35 minutes to do all of this, and I'd have to go really quickly, and I'd have to keep an eye on the clock. But I, I feel a little bit more relaxed. I mean, look, there's, a, there's an eight-year-old whose birthday it is today. It's not like I have all the time in the world. But um, I, I do feel like we can maybe cover a little bit more territory than we ordinarily would have because I, I recognize that people can like pause this and come back to it. Um, so that's a, I, I'm, I'm going to try, try and use that to our advantage as best I can. So all that to say, we're going to jump right into this. And we're looking at a story that has terrified people for years and, and also, as a bonus, has served as a cautionary tale for people who love to talk about God in terms of things like wrath and judgment and anger and violence. And so this story gets used a lot 
in certain types of circles where people really, really like to lean into like angry, violent, vengeful God type territory. And I can understand why. This is, this is a story that at, at face value kind of lends itself to that type of thinking. So we're gonna, but we're not starting with that particular story. We're starting with the story that happens right before that story, if that makes any sense. So in Genesis chapter 18, uh, we are in, yeah, in Genesis chapter 18, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the, the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. So first of all, up to this point, we've been spending several chapters now with this guy Abraham. This is like six chapters now in of stories about Abraham. And we've sort of seen a mixed bag of like how this guy is. But one of the most consistent things about Abraham that we've heard is Abraham will be the, the father of many people, of a great nation, as it says, and that that group of people, beginning with Abraham, will be a blessing to the rest of the world. So that there's this assumption that, first of all, Abraham is the beginning of a long line of people, and second, that those people will at some point, or will, you know, as they, go, as they move through the world, interact with the world as a force for good, as a, as a blessing. So he's sitting at the, um, the entrance to his tent. And then in verse two, it says, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, and this, this phrase, Lord, here, this is not like Lord, my God. This is not like all capital letters, like divine entity, Lord. This is like a person addressing somebody with a tremendous amount of respect is, is what this term is meant to imply. So if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, which by the way, Abraham was like, I, if I'm one of these guys, I'm like, look, we just met. Like, you haven't found favor in anything or anywhere. Like, we, we don't even know who you are. But he just, like, runs out to greet these people and says, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. Then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now, now that you have come to your servant. Again, why is he referring to them as Lord and himself as servant? He does not know these guys. And then, in, and then it says, very well, they answered, do as you say. So they have no objections to whatever it is that Abraham is doing here. So it says, very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, who is Abraham's wife. Quick, he said, get three seahs of, of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. So he just like runs into the house and is like, quick, bake some bread from scratch. No problem. We've all been watching sourdough videos and we all know how easily bread can be made from scratch. So he tells Sarah to go make some bread from scratch. Then, then he ran into the herd, ran to the herd, and selected a choice, a choice tender calf, and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. So it's not like he's like, let me see what we've got in the in the pantry. He's like, okay, you make bread from scratch. You kill that cow over there and make a meal out of it. This is very elaborate. This is this is a weird way to greet total strangers who have shown up near your house. So it says, um, anyway, so it says he gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set them before them. While they ate, he stood near them under the tree. So he's like, he serves them food and then like backs away and kind of stands nearby as just in case they need anything else. What in the world is going on here? Why is Abraham, because we don't know who these guys are. Like later on, we learn that they may or may not be divine messengers. But right here, we're, we're given no indication of any of that. All we're told, the, the, only, the only knowledge we have of who these individuals are, it says, um, uh, it says, Abraham looked and saw three men standing nearby. Like, <laughs> there's three men standing nearby, and Abraham goes nuts. He pulls out all the stops and throws the biggest party he can for three men 
who happened to be standing nearby his tent. So what in the world is Abraham doing here? So Abraham is practicing what was known as the custom of radical hospitality or just the custom of hospitality. And this would have been seen in the, in the ancient Near East, this would have actually been seen as a social obligation. Today, here, now, we don't really think in these kinds of terms, but in the ancient Near East, hospitality for the stranger was, was considered a, a massive virtue. So to see three strangers standing nearby who like were, I, I assume just vis visibly Abraham was able to confirm like these are not people who are part of any sort of like society or culture that they're currently dwelling within. And so Abraham sees three strangers and his, his response to the three strangers is not get off my lawn. His response is, hey, he, first of all, he calls them my Lord. He tells his wife, he, ask, he does not ask. I wanted to be more polite. He tells his wife, make some bread from scratch. He tells somebody else to kill a calf. He prepares a meal and he doesn't even eat the meal with them. He serves them the meal under the tree and then he stands off to the side. It's like, they might need a refill. I'll just hover nearby just in case. Um, and that is, that, that is Abraham's response to the three strangers. And again, at this time in this culture, this is not totally unheard of. This is how you would treat someone in your midst who may or may not be just a stranger who's just around. So uh, then you keep going into Genesis 18. Um, if we're going we're gonna to jump down a little bit to verse 16. It says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see their, uh, to see, Seth, I'm sorry, to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be, here it is again, blessed through him. Um, then it says, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about what, uh, for Abraham what he has promised him. So then it says, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. So now we're beginning to realize where the story's going, if you're familiar with these two city names. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Okay, so... We're, we're, we enter into the story with a, a massive display of hospitality. Then there is this acknowledgement that Abraham will be the beginning of sort of the story of blessing to all other nations. But then we're notified about two other nearby like nations, civilizations, Sodom and Gomorrah, and cities, whatever. And what we're told about them is that something is going on in these two cities. And the thing that's going on is so bad and is so destructive that these cities may or may not be allowed to like continue to exist because of what's going on that is apparently that people are crying out against. So we learn that God is planning to, in the story, we learn that God is planning to destroy the cities and Abraham pleads on their behalf. And we, we sort of see this um, kind of going, going forward. Abraham begins to plead on their behalf, which is another signal that Abraham is evolving as a person. Like the Abraham from a few chapters ago probably would not have cared that much about pleading on the behalf of a city, other than the fact that he has a relative named Lot who lives there. And so anyway, whatever's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah must be pretty bad because it's not like there's a ton of stories in the Bible or otherwise about God destroying entire cities. So something is going on in these two cities that is like uniquely and specifically um, bad. And 
obviously we've all been handed some baggage about what we expect this to be and we're gonna kind of detangle that in a minute so let's go let, let let's kind of journey into that part of the story now and kind of begin asking the question of like okay what is going on in these cities that has created such an extreme reaction? So in Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says the two angels, and the word angel here could just as easily just be messenger. So the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot, who we know from previous stories, is Abraham's nephew. It says, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. By the way, I don't know if you notice a parallel here. At the beginning of chapter 18, where's Abraham sitting? He's sitting at the opening of his tent. At the beginning of Genesis 19, where's Lot sitting? He's sitting at the entrance to the city. So there's sort of a mirroring parallel of where these two individuals are sitting and how they respond when they see strangers. So then it says, uh, in verse 2, it says, My lords, he said, again, this is a mirroring, like he also refers to them as my lords. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and go on your way early in the morning. No, so all this is very similar to what we saw with Abraham, but with Abraham, they accepted but here, here's what they say. They say, no, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. And then in verse three, it says, but he, Lot, insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. They want to go to the middle of town, but Lot is begging them, don't go into the middle of the town. And then it says, he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Okay, so here, by the way, I, just, I need to warn you. This is where the the vile, this, this is where the trigger warning like sets in. So this is your last chance to pause, come back, bail out entirely if that's what you want to do. Um, but it's about to get very explicit. So in verse five, it says, "They, the people from the town, says they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them." My kids are upstairs watching something. I hope so. Um, so the, all the men of the town surround the house and they like yell, like angry mob style, like yell into the house for Lot to send the strangers out so that they can do this with them. Now, our translation, here's, here's where we get into trouble. Our translation of this implies, or it gives off the impression that consent may or may not be involved in what the men of the town are planning. That bring them out here so that we can like hang out and get to know each other and enjoy one another's company in a very specific kind of way. That's not what's happening here. That's the, the, the impression that we get from the story is that they're, they're, they're inviting the men out and may, maybe they're gonna have a party or something. But that's not what's going on. The mob is essentially saying, and again, in, in English, it's been kind of, I mean, if you can imagine, this is, this is kind of dialed back a little bit from what's actually being said here because what's actually, what's essentially being said here is send out your house guests because we're going to rape them. So, and I, again, I realize like this is very, very like upsetting, disturbing, harsh, strong language, but this is, I mean, look, it's, it's the Bible, it's, it's the book of Genesis. And so like, we, we kind of have to, we either have to just ignore it completely or we have to really reckon with what's being said here. So that's what's going on here. There is basically, not, not basically, like very explicitly, these men are saying, send your house guests, send the visitors out of your house so that we can sexually assault them. And then in verse six of the story, um, I've lost it now. Okay, in verse six, it says, Lot went out to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. 
Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you, what you like with them. Like, wait, what? Like, th okay, this should upset us for all the reasons this is upsetting us right now. And we will have to at some point get to Lot's very bizarre, very unpleasing relationship with his daughters. But right now, Lot is offering up his daughters as a substitute, a, sa a sacrifice in place of the, the three men that he just like met a few hours ago. So it says, um, all right, and, but don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they replied. This fellow came here tonight, or th this fellow, speaking of Lot, came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play judge. So like not only do they see these other guys as outsiders, they still see Lot. As an outsider this guy came here as a foreigner and he wants to tell us how to be so then it says we'll treat you worse than them they kept bringing pressure on lot and moved forward to break down the door and it says but the men inside reached out and pulled lot back into the house and shut the door then they struck the men who were at the door of the house young and old with blindness so that they could not find the door the two men said to lot do you have anyone else here sons-in-law sons and daughters Anyone else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against this place or against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So again, very upsetting story. The story continues and this is pretty much where the dialogue stops and where the, like, the escape and the destruction begin to sort of happen. So the story continues with a lot of warnings and urgencies and ultimately the two cities are destroyed and only Lot and his daughters end up surviving the whole thing. So again, it's a very upsetting story. It's a story we've probably heard once or twice. Usually it's, it, it serves as like a cautionary tale about how angry God can be. And so the biggest question here is, what did these cities do that's so bad that it warrants the most extreme response imaginable. This is, this is a deeply upsetting story. And so the question we're left with is like, why is this here? And what is going on? And what, what did these two cities do that was so uniquely bad that it warranted this particular kind of response? So again, the, the story is often used as what is often referred to as a clobber passage, as like a warning against being gay. This is why the English translation leaves uh, the impression of possible consent and why um, that can be so damaging because it's not about that at all. The story has nothing to do with sexual orientation or consensual relationships, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, Lot tries to like trade his daughters for this. So this is not about sexual orientation, this is about sexual violence. So what, so what is going on here um, that, that we're seeing? Because there's a lot, there's actually a lot going on here. So in the ancient Near East, and I mentioned this a second ago when we looked at the Abraham part of the story, in the ancient Near East, hospitality was considered one of the greatest and most essential virtues that a person could have. Because at this time and in this place, there were lots of people who were nomadic and they didn't belong to any particular nation or tribe, or at the very least, they were traveling between nations or tribes. We talked about this already a little bit before. I mean, it's, it's impossible to just ignore this aspect of it when you're looking through the book of Genesis because so much of Genesis has to do with this idea. So there was a lot of risk involved 
in any kind of travel at this time. So either you're a part of a tribe or a nation, but you need for one reason or another to travel between those places, which is an incredibly dangerous and vulnerable thing to do. Not just because there might be violent people between places, but because it's not like there was a gas station. It's not like there were buckies on every like half, half, like two or three exits. This is like you could go days and days and days without finding a place to like get water or have food or to sleep safely. And so the idea in this time was we as a people, like society, like one of the sort of shared expectations of different civilizations of this time in the ancient Near East was if people are traveling between cities or nations or tribes and they come to where we are, it is our moral duty to provide shelter and food and rest for them. So this is what we see. This is why it's so important that Abraham is waiting at the entrance to his tent. This is why he runs out and he greets them the way that he does, because Abraham is observing what would have been considered a moral custom of its day. Abraham is doing what would have been seen as his moral obligation at the time. So if you were, um, okay, a few times ago, I tried this and the whole thing fell over. So we're going to see if I can avoid that. So let's say you have a tribe, you have a society, you have a group of people, and you're all living together in your, is, yeah, okay. Um, I was like, this may be out of the shot. So you have, this is a civilization of at least five people. So you have a civilization here in the ancient Near East. And inside your civilization, you have all the resources to keep yourself and one another alive. But again, if people are traveling, they probably left wherever they left from with a certain amount of supplies, but your, your supplies aren't going to last forever because you can only travel with so much. And so at a certain point, if a stranger attempts to pass through your town, city, um, territory, whatever, you have a choice. You can either choose to say this person is in a vulnerable situation and this person should be cared for because one day one of us might have to go travel somewhere and we would hope somebody else would offer us that same kind of courtesy. So what we see Abraham doing and what we see Lot doing is practicing this act of hospitality, of, of, so, of the socially obligated, or, or that they're socially, socially obliged to do. But what we see the people of Sodom doing is not that. Why does Lot tell them not to go into the square? Because he knows what happens when new people show up in town. Because as we were told before, what they said, what do they say to Lot? This guy came here as a foreigner and we'll treat you worse than we treated them. That tells us maybe Lot, when he got to town, found out exactly what happens to strangers when they enter Sodom, when they enter the city. So this is, this is all, this is the context of what we find in this story. So the practice of hospitality became a way of measuring the goodness of a person. In Genesis 18, the reason Genesis 18 is so important before we get to Genesis 19 is because it's meant to be a signal that Abraham has adopted a certain amount of moral character. And that the story of Abraham is meant to mirror the story of Lot and is supposed to act as a contrast to what we see once we get into the city of Sodom. So in the ancient Near East, one of the things that differentiates a good person from an evil person is how they treat strangers in their midst. This was a moral measuring stick for does this person have any amount of moral character? I don't know. How does he act when a stranger shows up at his border? So this is what we see in the story. Later on, this, this will continue to be a major theme throughout the entire body of the scriptures. Look at the book of Leviticus, chapter um, 19. In Leviticus 19, 
verse 33. It says, when a foreigner resides among you. This is like, by the way, these are the commands that were given to the priests. It says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the command here is, let's not forget that before you had a place of your own, before you had any amount of security or wealth or independence, you were strangers. You were foreigners in another country. You were desperate. You were the people that everybody else saw as other. And what would have, been, what would have meant for you to have been treated with kindness and hospitality and generosity? And so it, this passage in Leviticus is basically saying, now that the shoe is on the other foot, now that you have some amount of resources and power and agency, you, your, your now obligation is to treat foreigners in the way that you wish you had been treated when you were a foreigner. It's almost like, I mean, imagine, imagine living in a place that often describes itself as a nation of immigrants, but then becomes overtly hostile to refugees and immigrants. Imagine what it might be like to live in that kind of place. And that's the warning that we see in Leviticus in this space. And it's saying, let's not forget that one of the greatest virtues we have is offering generosity and hospitality when a stranger arrives at our borders. So then, uh, if you, in fact, if you jump over to the book of Job, one of the oldest, if not the oldest book in the entire Bible, Job has suffered a lot. There's been a lot of um, suffer and struggle on Job's behalf or by Job. And Job, in, through, through a lot of the book, he's trying to explain to himself and to his friends and to God why he doesn't deserve to suffer. And he's trying to like lay out all of like his moral, like all the ways that he has been a moral upstanding individual. And one of the things that he mentions shows up in Job uh, 31, 32, where it says, um, it says, but no stranger had to spend the night in the street for my door was always open to the traveler. One of the virtues that Job lists for himself as a way of saying, like, I don't deserve to suffer and here are all the reasons why. And one of the reasons is because I never let a stranger sleep in the street. I was never indifferent or hostile to the needs of the stranger. So this continues to be a virtue that gets lifted up over and over and over again in documents from the ancient Near East, including what we find in the Bible. So this cultural norm of hospitality serves as a contrast against what was going on in the city of Sodom. This, again, it's why it's important that we see Abraham and Lot both greet someone at, their, at the entrance to wherever they are, because this, this would have been the norm. The, what, what was abnormal was what you were finding in the city of Sodom. So um, the issue in Sodom is not sexual orientation. The issue in Sodom is not having really crazy wild parties. The, the issue in Sodom is, in, or the issue in all of Genesis 19 with the city of Sodom and, and presumably also with the city of Gomorrah is how the people in this society are treating other people and strangers in their midst. The issue is you have, like, as, like there's so little that we owe each other, like when we're not interacting with each other tribes, the least we can do is to show some amount of hospitality and grace and not be violent towards the strangers in our midst. And what, what we see God in the story saying is like, they can't even manage to do that. They, they cannot even like offer some amount of hospitality to desperate strangers in their midst. And so the, the big, um, the critique, the, the massive uh, indictment against the city of Sodom is they are, they're hostile. To, to strangers and travelers in their midst. Also, by the way, this feels like a pretty random and horrible response to the news that there are people visiting your town. Like, again, we can go back to like, 
these guys find out that there's visitors in their town that they haven't even needed to interact with and they all get together like 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 arrange a mob and show up at Lot's house and threaten to do like the most violent thing they can think of to this uh, these individuals it seems pretty random and arbitrary and horrible like why would you why is that your response to just random strangers showing up in your town well and again all the trigger warnings the issue in Sod or um the thing that's going on here is in the ancient in the ancient world at this time um sexual assault was often used as a symbol of domination or conquest or power so one regular practice in some nations was that after if, if you go to war or into a battle and one army defeats another army what they would do is the officers and higher ranking soldiers of the winning army would sexually violate the leaders of the defeated army as a way not because again not because of sexual orientation but because this is how you show power over somebody else in the ancient near east so if someone enters a city and the locals want to send a message that they don't take too kindly to strangers they might decide to sexually assault and murder those strangers as a way of signaling to the rest of the world do not come here we don't take kindly to strangers and actually weirdly i don't know if you this is this is a very dated reference it kind of reminds i don't know if you've seen the movie easy rider um it reminds me of the scene in easy rider where these three the, the motorcycle guys the motorcycle guys in you know the easy riders the three easy riders when they go into this diner and in this like small town that they're passing through and the minute they sit down at the table you get like you it's it's like this palpable feeling of like nobody wants you here and then later not to spoil any like major plot points from a 50 year old movie but um they some of the people from the town like follow these guys out to the edge of town and um and murder one of the motor motorcyclists i'll i'll let you guess which one if you haven't seen it but anyway what you find in that in in that scene of that movie is something that's actually a pretty old thing that people have been wrestling with since genesis 19 which is when someone enters your town then you have a choice or when someone enters your territory when someone needs refuge for the night you have a choice and the choice can either be to be hospitable or to be violent and hostile and what we see again the contrast here is abraham and lot make one choice but the citizens of sodom make a different choice and that is the major indictment against this group of people um, other writers would actually later go on not just to talk about this phenomenon of hospitality versus in uh, like non-hospitality but other writers would actually go on to write about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a story that's been written about a ton. And they would emphasize that the real problem in the city of Sodom, uh, or in, in both cities, but the, specifically in the city of Sodom, was their hospitality or their, in their hostility to vulnerable strangers. There's a, a quote from one of the early church fathers, a guy named Origen, who writes this. He writes, hear these words, you who close your houses to strangers. Hear these words, you who avoid a guest as an enemy. Lot escaped the conflagration for this reason alone, because he opened his house to strangers. Angels entered the hospitable house. Fire entered the houses closed to the strangers. So Origen is commenting on this. And again, Origen's read of this story is not sexual orientation or like crazy parties. Origen's read on this is the same as really how the book of Genesis lays it out, which is, this is a, this is about hostility towards people who need your help. This this is about this is about not showing up for somebody who is in need, and 
And so origin, like in, in fact, the, the reading that we're used to the, on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually pretty relatively recent in the story of like how people have talked about and interpreted the story. So if you examine other sources, we see that the problem went actually way beyond just how they treated visitors or like or these particular strangers. It actually extended to how they treated anybody who was vulnerable. It wasn't just like if somebody shows up at, uh, at the door, then we're going to be overtly violent and hostile. But you know, if, if you're from here, you, we take care of our own. There wasn't even that. Look at uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Um, in, there's this prophet named Ezekiel who writes in verse 16, or I'm sorry, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, Ezekiel writes, now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Again, speaking directly into the story from Genesis 19. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. How does this prophet describe the people of Sodom? They were overfed and unconcerned. Oh my gosh, how resonant does that feel to us right now? Overfed and unconcerned with the needs of people who were crying out for some sort of help. So it wasn't just like if strangers show up, we're going to be hostile, but everybody else, everybody who lives here, we've got your back. It was no, anybody, anybody who was poor, anybody who was, who was vulnerable, Anybody with power in the city of Sodom has no time or any regard. They're overfed and unconcerned with the needs of the people who need help the most. There's another Jewish source uh, called Sirach. And in Sirach, or Sirach um, 6.8, which, oh, yep, there it is, sorry. Uh, in Sirach 16.8, it says, again, speaking about the same story, it says, God did not spare the neighbors of Lot, whom he loathed on account of their arrogance. So Sirach says, like, this can all sort of be boiled down to arrogance. It, it, because arrogance can make us feel like we're entitled to whatever we have and that we're not obligated to help anybody else. Arrogance makes me feel like, well, I have what I have because I deserve it. But if somebody else needs help, well, they should just do something about it. Um, arrogance can lead us to say things like, well, if you're unemployed, maybe you should just get a job. Um, or uh, if, well, if they didn't want their kids to be put in cages, they shouldn't have come here in the first place. That's an arrogant thing to say. That is, that is, that is a statement that says, I'm fine. I've taken care of myself. And therefore, everybody else should just do what I do. And they won't have any problems either. And what it does is it sort of downplays and um, it, it neglects to sort of acknowledge that not everybody, not everybody has been given the same advantages. That I have. This is this is one of the problems with when we start denying the existence of privilege. Because when I deny the existence of any amount of privilege, what it what it tells me is, well, yeah, I, I have what I have because it, it's mine and because I deserve it. And I and if if somebody else doesn't have it, it's not because I'm more pri privileged than they are. It's just because I am better in some sort of way. And so it creates. Um, so it creates this sort of false sense of everybody gets what they deserve, like this weird meritocracy way of looking at all things. And it gives us license to be really, really hostile to people who are somehow not on the inside and, not, and people who don't have the same resources that perhaps we have and that we feel that we're entitled to. Sirach says, yeah, the problem here, or Ezekiel says they're overfed and unconcerned. Sirach says, yeah, it's arrogance. The whole, the whole thing can be, can be stripped down to arrogance. There's a first century Jewish historian named Josephus. This is what he writes. He says, now, about this time, the Sodomites 
overweeningly proud of their numbers and the extent of their wealth, showed themselves insolent to men and impious to the divinity, insomuch that they no more remembered the benefits that they had received from God, hated foreigners, and avoided any contact with others. So again, it goes back to like the, they, he, uh, Josephus says, they forgot that there was a time that they needed help and somebody helped them. And they forgot that there was a time that they were desperate and they somehow were provided for. And so Josephus is pointing out like the hypocrisy of like this posture of arrogance. And, and, and he goes on to say, they hated foreigners and avoided any contact with others. Indignant at this conduct, God accordingly resolved to chastise them for their arrogance and not only to uproot their city, but to blast their land so completely that it should yield neither plant nor fruit whatsoever from that time forward. Again, every commentary you look at from um, ancient Jewish sources all the way up through early Christian sources has nothing to do with sexual orientation. It has everything to do with how are you treating the most vulnerable, poor, in need people in your midst? When someone shows up at the border, what is your response to the needs of that person? When someone knocks on your door, how do you respond to that person's cry? This continues over and over and over again to be the fatal indictment against Sodom. So, um, so according to ancient rabbis, there were actually cautionary tales. In fact, I mean, again, it goes way beyond just like these strangers. According to ancient rabbis, there were actually cautionary tales about a certain group of women in the city of Sodom. And these women had secretly been helping the poor in, in the town without, like they were trying to be covert about it because it turns out if you start helping the poor in a city like this, you get labeled in, in pretty negative terms. And it actually might result in some like actual backlash and violence against you. And so in the stories that the rabbis would tell, these women who had been secretly helping the poor were burned to death by an angry mob. So Lot's presence in this city at the, at the gate implies that he wants to greet these strangers before they go anywhere near the center of the town because he knows what happens when strangers show up in town. This is why Lot begs them, don't go to the city, don't go to the middle of town, just come to my house, you'll be safe there because he knows they're not gonna last 10 minutes if they go to the center of town. So the ancient Jewish sources insist that Sodom's crimes were arrogance, indifference, and a lack of hospitality. According to Josephus, they had become so comfortable within their own wealth and their, and their own security that they were indifferent and hostile towards the needs of anyone outside of their borders. The word we have for this today is the word nationalism. The idea that this isn't patriotism. Patriotism is, I believe really deeply in the values of the place where I live. Nationalism is a way of saying like, we will, we will shut down all, all the entry, entry points. We will stop interacting with the world in any sort of relational way. And we will look after ourselves and no one else. And if anyone tries to like come in to this society in any sort of way, they will be met with the most hostile, aggressive response we can imagine. So this is, this is a story that sort of pushes back against that posture and is a way of saying the needs of other people are not, should, not, should never be far from your mind. And the needs of somebody else should not be something that you are unconcerned with. Don't, don't get arrogant and overfed about this. We need, we need to stay alert and awake to the needs of others. This story is not a cautionary tale, again, about sexual orientation or partying too hard. It has nothing to do with any of that. This story is meant to be a reminder of how seriously the God of the Bible takes the concerns of the most vulnerable people in our midst, the foreigner, the poor, anyone who is crying out for some kind of relief. Um, by the way, as an aside, 
this is also not meant to be a cautionary tale about how God will burn your town down if you don't do this right. Um, this is meant to be a story that highlights the virtue of charity and hospitality. And in, in fact, uh, jump over to the book of Matthew. Uh, Jesus kind of echoes some of the sentiment here in, in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, in verse 35, Jesus says, for, he's speaking to his followers. And he, said, and he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. According to Jesus, whenever we welcome the stranger, whenever we show some amount of grace or generosity or hospitality to someone who is in need, whenever we offer generosity to the foreigner or the sick or the hungry or the needy, there is, according to Jesus, a divine presence in that in that moment. Um, look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. The book of Hebrews kind of invokes this story as well. So in Hebrews 13, verse 2, it says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is, a, this is absolutely a direct reference to the story of Sodom. Don't forget to, to show hospitality to the stranger in your midst. And he says, because you might not know that you are, you are welcoming angels in your midst. What's he saying? He's saying, anytime you show hospitality and grace to someone who needs it, there is a divine presence in that moment. This is an echo of the Sodom story. It's an echo of what Jesus says over and over and over again. We continue to bump up against this idea of the, this virtue of hospitality that was born out of necessity in the ancient Near East. It continues to be a virtue. It continues to be something that we should be aware of. The scriptures are constantly reminding us that care for the stranger and the vulnerable is central to our calling. And what we see with Sodom is the opposite of that. They are not generous towards outsiders. They don't welcome strangers. The city is full of hate. It's full of mistrust. It's full of prejudice towards any, any kind of outsider. Anybody who isn't in the tribe, this, these are the people that we like the least. These are the people that we would gladly do some kind of violence to. They say to foreigners, you are not welcome here. We don't know you. We don't like you. Keep moving or suffer the consequences. And in Genesis 19, this particular God is having none of it. So what does it, so this story is a strong challenge to us with the question of what does it mean for us to live with a spirit of hospitality? What does it mean for us to live with, with an openness? What does it mean for us to not become people who are overfed and unconcerned? This, this is, again, this is why it's so important that we acknowledge the existence of our own privilege. Because what it does is that reminds us that we, for one reason or another, have access to certain resources, contacts, um, opportunities that not everybody else has. And when I acknowledge that I have a certain amount of privilege, what that does is it raises my antenna and leads me to a place where I can, in a healthy kind of way, ask, okay, I have these things. And not everybody else has these things. How can I use these things as a, as a tool to help somebody else? Um, this, this is what we, what we see with the story of Sodom. This is a posture that is unmoved by the struggle of people who are physically disabled. It is a posture that is unmoved uh, towards the people who struggle with mental illness. Um, 
stories like the story of Sodom, is it's about people who have taken a posture of being unmoved by the pleas and the cries of a racial minority who continue to say we are unsafe in places that everybody else is told that they should feel safe. When, when we say, when, when a person is murdered by, by someone with some amount of power and authority, and our response is, well, let's just wait for all the facts. I'm not, and our, our, our response becomes indifference, or, well, you know, that person had a shady past, so, you know, who knows what was going on. And we become indifferent to the cry, even though this happens over and over and over again. The, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this, the, these stories, it's about people who are overfed and unconcerned. It's about people who can, who can hear stories of murder and violence, who can actually watch an eight minute and 40 second, six second long video and remain unconcerned with what happens to the person in the video. This is, this is a strong indictment, but it's not the kind of indictment that we thought it was. It's a strong indictment against any type of indifference that we may hold towards the needs of other people. It's an, it's, it is an indifference against people who are fleeing from violence in their home country, who literally have no place to go. These are old stories that continue to be told. People who are struggling just to scrape by. Like we're, we're talking about people who are vulnerable. We're talking about people who are without opportunity and resources. And this, this story is a way of saying, don't do this. Don't become overfed and unconcerned. Be the kind of person who encounters the stranger and the foreigner and the poor in your midst. And there is a divine presence in that moment. Jesus says, whenever you do something good for someone who cannot provide for themselves, or whenever, whenever you help someone who will not have the power to help you back, there is a divine presence in that interaction. There is a power in that. So this season that we're in has revealed a lot about which groups of people are most valued in our society. It's held a mirror up to us in a lot of ways, and it's not a super flattering picture that we've seen. That certain groups of people, particularly um, people of color in our midst, tend to do worse with this virus for some reason. Possibly it's because of generation after generation after generation of lack of access to medical treatment and, um, and not having the same privileges that a lot of us have just sort of taken for granted. This season has shown us which jobs are most expendable. This season has shown us who we do and don't consider to be quote unquote essential. And what we find is that this season has given us a lot to think about in terms of how do we respond when someone articulates a need and when we find that there is there is struggle in our midst. How do we respond to that? Or do we respond like Jesus invites us to by welcoming the divine in our midst? Or do we respond in kind of in the same way that the people of Sodom, which is, you're not our problem. We're here to look out for ourselves and nobody else. Keep moving. So perhaps we struggle with empathy because we have a lack of hospitality. We hold, our, we hold close to our own tribe and the people on the other side of the proverbial door, not our problem. Abraham's basic calling here is to be a blessing, to create space where people can feel safe, where people can receive peace and grace. So what does it mean to continue with that calling? It, it is not insignificant that in the story of Abraham, after he welcomes the stranger, that God describes Abraham as someone who will go and be a blessing to others and will welcome the stranger into his midst. What does it mean to be the kind of person who does this? What does it mean to be the kind of family that is hospitable to the stranger? What does it mean to be the kind of church that creates this kind of space? What does it mean to be the kind of society that creates this kind of space? 
And what does it mean when the people who are most hostile towards the people that we're, we're talking about here, when, when the people who are most hostile, hostile to foreigners and to the poor and to the medically vulnerable, when the group of people who are most indifferent to that group of people are also Christians in our midst, what, is it, what does that tell us about who we become and what kind of, what kind of atmosphere that we've created? What kind, what kind of city have we built? if that's our posture. This story should be very sobering and should wake us up to, to the reality of our calling here is not to just take care of our own. Our calling is to have our door open to the stranger in our midst. So may, may we continue to, to ask new questions about what does it mean for me to be generous, to be concerned for the needs of people who are not in my tribe? What does it mean for me to be aware of the needs of others? What does it mean for me to resist the temptation to become overfed and unconcerned? And may we embody that, and may we be people who pour out grace and peace to the people in our midst who need it the most. Let me pray for us. God, we acknowledge this is a difficult, challenging, frustrating story, and we didn't even get to everything that makes it those things. But as we struggle with this at the core of it, may we wrestle with our own indifference. May we ask ourselves questions, like really probing difficult questions. May we interrogate our own posture towards the people that we don't know, towards the people who are most in need, to people of color who are crying out against police brutality, to people who are gay or trans who have found themselves on the outside, often, oftentimes on the, the wrong side of somebody using the story as a weapon against them, for people who are going hungry right now because of job loss or sickness or any number of things that have been um, exacerbated by the season that we're in, for people who are vulnerable, for people who are sick, for, for those perhaps who are watching or listening who have gotten a diagnosis and they're afraid. May we remember that we are not alone, but as we look at the story, as we remember the story, may we remember that part of our job is to remind everybody else that they're not alone either. May we never become overfed and unconcerned towards the needs of the foreigner and the widow and the poor and anyone who cries out to be seen and to be acknowledged and to be validated. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.